please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of March, 2021, and it's time for another Morning Espresso. As usual, if you're watching live, please do uh, feel free to click below where you'll have simultaneous translations, or you have the Q&A button as well, where you can send us questions. And then there's a third option, which is, of course, uh, to send us emails, nordeafunds at nordea.com. Right, well, there's a lot going on in the macro world. So uh, I'm pleased to be joined this morning by our senior macro economist, Sebastian Gali. Good morning, Sebastian. Good morning. Hi. So a lot of action last week, a lot of excitement um, because we saw a lot of movement um, on the US uh, yield curve. So maybe you could just tell us what's been going on there. It's a classic bond market sell-off. And what do you saw if you focus on the, on the next slide? is uh, that the yield curve steepened quite significantly uh, and, uh, and reached 1.61% on the 10-year yield. And since, uh, since basically a few days has started to normalize. And that's what you're seeing from uh, on the graph where at the bottom, you see all these uh, dots going downwards, uh, down about 10 basis points or so. And that's basically the market starting to calm down. So you move from 1.61% to roughly 1.41% on the 10-year yield. And it happens even without the Federal Reserve intervening by extending the duration of its purchases. So they do absolutely nothing. They say, this is just good news. So the market is more optimistic regarding the US economy and therefore I have nothing to do. And that's the same stance which is being taken by the Bank of England. In complete contradictions, the Europeans and the Japanese are much more aggressive in trying to protect against the steepening of their own yield curve because this is a bond sell-off which started in the US but extended on a global basis. And that had knock-on effects in the equity market as well as uh, investors got a little bit jittery there, didn't they? They did, yeah. And the equity yeah. markets, uh, both uh, in developed market and emerging markets, suffered. And what we discovered, which is very important, is the, the NASDAQ or growth stocks were very sensitive to relatively small interest rate move. I mean, small for a certain definition of small. And because they're so sensitive to it, it tells you that they're overvalued. So this was the lesson of this uh, sub-bond market sell-off is that growth, some of it is, uh, is quite overvalued, which is not a great surprise. No, I think we've seen value stocks sort of gradually coming back now. So let's see uh, how that develops uh, going ahead. Now, you just mentioned Europe. And uh, I think for the next slide, you wanted to sort of hone in on Italy because uh, there's a picture there that's evolving as well. And, and I think you wanted to touch on that. Sure. If we focus on the next slide, what you can see is that Italy and Europe is a much more positive story going forward. So the there are vaccines which are happening uh, or arriving at a much faster pace in, uh, in the Eurozone. People are very pessimistic uh, regarding this and it's going to happen. If we focus on Italy, which is what we call a high beta, something that moves a lot when things go wrong, uh, then you can see basically that this normalization trade that you saw in the US is also happening in Italy. 
But very importantly, the curve remains very steep in Italy, which means it's a very appealing uh, country from a yield perspective, uh, but also from a credit perspective, particularly so because we expect the Italian and European economy to do better in six months, 12 months, 24 months from now. That'll feed into better credit risk, which is good for Italian banks uh, and in general for Italian credit and the, and the like. So a lot of appealing things developing in Italy. It's been uh, not a depressing story, but a difficult story for a long time until Mario Draghi. And now we're starting to get all the right elements uh, for a more performance in the Italian market. And you're not just saying that because my next guest is Italian, are you? I, I am not. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I know we have a big Italian audience as well, so uh, I'm sure they'll be pleased to, to hear some good news coming out of Italy uh, there and an opportunity perhaps. Indeed, yeah, and I think it's a great opportunity if we focus maybe on the, on the last slide with, uh, with um, basically the, the key points. Yeah, the key takeaways. Yeah. And then, then I think the, the the first one is the end of the temper tantrum offers opportunity because there's a dislocated market, as you were pointing out, and particularly yeah. so in uh, in emerging markets. Yeah. And we've talked about that as well, haven't we, the last few weeks. So um, if anyone's not sure about what our views are on that, they can always go to the Stay Alert microsite and, and look at uh, what you've been saying over the last few weeks. Sure. And then, and and then yep. the, the last element, I, I do apologize, but at the it's the, the ECB's defensive, and that's very good for Italian BTPs. It means that if the yields steepen a lot in Italy, uh, there is some form of safety or insurance coming from the ECB, uh, and that encourages people basically to flatten the curve and take more risk in Italy. And what was uh, once a difficult story is starting to become increasingly quite a good one. Exactly. Some badly needed relief on its way. Indeed. Great. Well, thank you for your time this morning, Sebastian. Uh, good to see you again. And uh, we'll speak again soon, no doubt. Right. Now we're going to move to the main section. And this morning I'm joined by Fabio, Fabio Angelini. Fabio is a senior product specialist uh, on our European credit side. So uh, good morning, Fabio. Are you there? Oh, I think you're no, on mute, Paul. Fabio. Oh, hi. Hi. Hey Paul, yeah, sorry, I always make the mistake. Yes, I'm here. It's uh, I hear you loud and clear. I'm so glad you finally invited me for your morning espresso, and I'm very ready to be, very happy to be your guest today. <laughs> well, we were just waiting for this the the, the yield curve, of course, in Italy before we uh, invited you on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this morning you're joining us to talk about our European High Yield Stars Bond Fund um or strategy sorry um so but before before we talk about the esg side i wondered if perhaps it would make sense just to talk about you know the broader asset class uh european high yield obviously was a tricky year last year like it was in so many other asset classes as well perhaps you could just sort of bring us up to speed what's been going on in the european um yeah credit markets over the last sort of 12 18 months Yes, of course. Uh, it has actually been a kind of a roller coaster, as you said, um, very much like for our asset classes. And I brought some data on the first slide, uh, okay. if that comes up, which yep. we can look at together to uh, bring in the focus. Uh, basically, um, I would say that um, credit, uh, and specifically sub investment grade credit, actually remained a bit on the side when it comes to investors' preference last year. Um, we have seen the um, actual preference for asset classes um, swinging widely from uh, very, very safe assets, 
being in huge demand, of course, in February and March, uh, to huge appetite, huge revamp in uh, risk appetite uh, in the second part of the year. And basically that mean equity maybe was more the, the most favored pick uh, from the investor side. Credit was a bit in the middle in all this, um, let's say on the side. Actually, if we look at the last uh, more or less 12 months, we see uh, that it has been uh, delivering quite well. Uh, it is actually on top of the ladder um, versus both government bonds and um, European equity, which you can see on the left part, uh, on the left side of the, of the slide. Um, it's not the first time uh, credit actually uh, delivers uh, a very strong results, specifically after a crisis or a big uh, sell-off. Um, when it comes to valuation, uh, we have seen wide swings, as we said. Um, I think as of today, we are back exactly where we were uh, in terms of spread uh, on the day the sell-off started. So we're back to 20th of February 2020, uh, if you want. So the movement in spread has been net zero. Uh, beginning of the pandemic till today, but actually performance compared to um, before the pandemic, I think we are up somewhere somewhere like uh, three to uh, three and a half percent. So more than the uh, more than what has been lost uh, has been recovered uh, from the from this asset class, despite a net zero movement in uh, spreads. This clearly is telling you a story about the carry of the asset class which is still the unique fingerprint of the uh, of sub-investment grade credit. And by the way, I think today, this is the only traditional way in Europe uh, you can go for if you aim for a 3% uh, yield or so. Uh, so always interesting to have a look at this. Clearly, this is not meant to be a good or a bad call on credit. Just to put things into perspective, you know, credit has been able to deliver strong results also when it was not into uh, uh, on top of the radar of investors. So it's always an interesting asset class to look at, I think. Yeah, it's probably also worth pointing out, isn't it, that there's a difference between European high yield and, and US high yield because on the US side, you have a lot more energy exposure. And we saw those big drawdowns last year when the oil price um, dropped. Uh, um, so it's just important to understand the difference between those two as well. Absolutely. And actually, um, it's, it's not only about the composition. There are also some difference in risk appetite, I think, between investor base in Europe and in US. Uh, credit in Europe specifically, well, also in the US, uh, in general, sub-investment credit uh, has been dumped from portfolios in, uh, in yeah. March. And then, especially in Europe, investors were very uh, reluctant to come back to the asset class. They did so uh, in small steps, while there has been a huge comeback to USA yield uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. So actually, uh, definitely different dynamics uh, here and there. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, I'm looking at the flow data as well. And, uh, you know, here at Nordea, we're just starting to see uh, some some return to that asset class. So um, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, indeed. So we've talked about the asset class generally, but what's kind of a bit special about uh, this particular strategy is the fact that we, it's a stars strategy. So our audience hopefully by now will know that whenever we talk about stars, we're talking about dedicated ESG. So maybe you can explain to us a little bit about, you know, how do we actually you know, integrate ESG into this portfolio? How do we go about that? Yes, sure. And again, 
I could speak about uh, this for one hour, but I think you would never invite me again. So I'll be a bit shorter on this. Okay. Um, I actually have, uh, again, another visual slide just to, uh, to, to look at this together. Uh, I think what yeah. we do is intuitively very, uh, very straightforward. We simply want to deliver performance and responsibility at the same time. And uh, many of your guests have, uh, um, have described our STARS approach uh, we actually extended the STARS approach also to uh, sub-investment grade credit and credit in general. And we basically do three things to raise the ESG bar here. We um, start with a, a list of exclusion. Some are the typical exclusion you can imagine like uh, international convention and sort of things. Uh, we enhance this with some specific uh, more detailed sector. Uh, screenings, excluding, for example, controversial sectors, or it can be some specific uh, uh, filters on energy. Uh, we might talk about that later. Uh, but really, the core of what we do, um, especially in credit, is spending a lot of time in putting a number on the ESG profile of the companies. Uh, we have an internal ESG scoring also for, uh, the, for our fixed income stars portfolio. And perhaps it's even more important for uh, European AIL because there are quite a lot of companies which are uh, not rated by third party providers. So this is a very big part of our uh, competitive advantage, I would say, when we look at the, when we build uh, built up our strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, we aim to have structural engagement with uh, all the company, uh, companies we invest into. We do this for a number of reasons. Um, and uh, in general, I can say it's really helpful in uh, um, adding up another layer of analysis into the ESG integration, basically. So the bottom up is very well uh, recapped by the lower part of the slide. We simply integrate ESG into credit analysis. We want to deliver returns, but also responsibility also in sub-investment grade credit, basically. Great. And um, later this month, we have the sustainable um, finance disclosure regulation coming into force and basically different strategies will be put into three different uh, articles. So basically article nine being, you know, strategies that really address ESG. Then we have strategy eight where we have ESG considerations and then basically everything else goes into article six. Based on what you're telling me, I'm, I'm guessing this is an article eight, is that correct? It's absolutely correct. And I think that's the Yay. short answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Good. You nailed it. You nailed ah. it. I think <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> I think that's the, the, the short answer is simply, yes, uh, it's, uh, this approach is very much in line with uh, Article 8. Actually, if I can just spend, uh, spend a couple of words more on this. Um, sure. uh, again, maybe with the support of a uh, uh, recapping slide. I think this is... Um, sitting very comfortably uh, on Article 8. Um, other guests you had in the uh, other episodes of Morning Espresso uh, discussed about you know, upcoming ESG regulation. Um, again, not a topic we are taking uh, now, but I think the bottom line um, as far as Article 8 is concerned is that there are many roads to Article 8 and uh, the regulation identifies a number of things which are good ESG practices. And basically you can do some of these, not necessarily all of these. And a good combination of these uh, will basically make you compliant with uh, Article 8. Now it could be, for example, 
excluding fossil fuel intensive companies. It could be integrating ESG with a more, uh, you know, uh, rating uh, kind of angle. It could be engagement. It could, it could be many different combinations. Um, and actually, um, what we do in our stars approach is all of this. We do all of this together. And that's why I was saying uh, we sit very comfortably on this uh, Article 8 uh, classification. It's it, for sure an Article 8 product. And we do uh, more than just a combination of this. We do a lot of uh, uh, ESG. Uh, we combine a lot of ESG measures into our stars approach. Great. And this is you know, within this space, there's not that many uh, ESG specific sort of dedicated European high yield bond strategies. Uh, it's something that we've been doing now, I think we've just crossed two years uh, of, this, of this process uh, and this strategy. So I wondered, you know, what are, what are we learning from this? You know, what have been the, the key learning points over the last couple of years? And also, does it result in a specific tilt in the portfolio that you're, that you're seeing? That's a, that's a good one. And, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, as you said, yeah, we, we are still learning. I mean, it's already two years, you're right, uh, that we are actually integrating ESG uh, in, uh, in sub-investment grade credit. Um, we're learning every day, but I think there are already some, uh, some learning points which we brought home. And uh, uh, I think the, the biggest um, learning point or confirmation that we had is that it is indeed, it is, it comes with a lot of challenges, um, mm -hmm. but it is indeed possible to uh, integrate ESG in a very robust way, also uh, in a market like uh, European yield. And actually we have lived up to our ambition of delivering, delivering both um, returns and, uh, you know, a sustainable angle into European yield. Um, most importantly, I think it's also fair to say this came uh, out uh, I mean, there was no alpha left on the table, uh, if I can say it like that. So uh, mm -hmm. it's also an important learning point, I believe. Uh, it's further evidence also in fixed income that you're not into, uh, you're not in for a trade-off. It's not about sacrificing return to boost up uh, responsibility or sustainability. The two can go hand in hand. That's also a very strong learning point we had. Um, and when it comes to the second part of your question on the portfolio tilt, I think that's a bit more complex uh, to take. Um, I think the answer here is yes and no. And the reason is that obviously, let's make an example, maybe the easiest way. Um, if we think about energy, like you mentioned before also, yeah. uh, as soon as you are ESG attentive in a portfolio, you will mm -hmm. typically be underweight in energy. Yeah. Uh, and this is clearly kind of a tilt that you give to the portfolio somehow. Now, obviously you could say, because energy is a high beta sector, uh, particularly volatile versus other sectors, mm -hmm. uh, it could, you could be uh, tempted to say that uh, ESG portfolios in general, because they are underweight energy, for example, they're a bit more defensive. Um, but actually uh, our experience is not necessarily um, uh, not necessarily uh, this, there is no real tilt which is shaping the portfolio 100%. And the reason is that, uh, of course, one thing you could do is you just look at the universe, you exclude everything that is not rated, you pick only the best uh, ESG ratings, and then you build up a portfolio this way. In this way, of course, you would have a very strong tilt. 
but you would also be limiting a lot your uh, investment universe, actually. And we are not really a fan uh, of, this, um, of this approach. Uh, in principle, this would be equal to say, I don't know, you take the universe, you only select the companies with the lowest leverage, for example, and then you only invest in those. Of course, mm -hmm. you can do it, but you're giving a strong tilt. And uh, it's not really what we are doing here with ESG. Uh, clearly, there are some exclusions and further limitation to the names we invest into. But our yep. experience is that the investment universe remains big enough to make your choice matter when it comes to the portfolio location, the risk of the portfolio. So again, to go on with the same example we mentioned before, if you are underweight energy, uh, and that's reducing a bit uh, your risk, uh, perhaps you might be, let's say, overweight financials. Those are also very cyclical names. Uh, then you could uh, get uh, more risk from that side. In general, you have the freedom to, the portfolio manager will always have the freedom to um, invest into what he wants and build his own portfolio. So I would not expect two ESG uh, portfolios to be uh, similar a priori. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, and perhaps just to close the circle, um, it, is, it is no doubt that there are some kind of uh, limitations. Energy is an example, or not limitation, but just exclusions that you, it's what you want to see. That's why you're actually going for an ESG uh, approach. Then you see some exclusion, for example, on fossil, uh, like polluting companies, this kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Then this means that like for any exclusion, there will be an impact when it comes to tracking error. So the portfolio manager will need to live with this, uh, uh, we need to manage this portion of tracking error. You could call it an ESG tracking error if you want, but he will use the whole universe remaining at disposal to build up the portfolio to the way he wants. Now, this means that um, our take at least is that you don't really have a tilt, which is conditioning your portfolio forever. Mm -hmm. You're clearly having a part of tracking error that you need to manage uh, on the ESG side, but uh, basically, uh, you you can beat the market even with this portion of tracking error. And we have given a very strong signal in this direction, actually, because if you look at our star portfolios, all of these portfolios, including the European IEL portfolio, they all have traditional benchmarks. So we didn't pick yeah. uh, ESG benchmarks with uh, a tilt toward ESG. We're just, uh, we, we are pretty confident we can outperform the market with this standard, with ESG standard, which is by the way, something we do since many years before even we started doing this in credit. And, uh, and the good thing, as I was saying before, is we are living up to our expectation. Uh, it's, it's working very well and we are proving that it's something that can be done in uh, European AIL, uh, which was a bit of a long answer, I guess, to your question, <laughs> but uh, hopefully- But a good answer. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, no, and, and you're absolutely right. The performance, uh, you know, if we look at the performance over the period, it's been fantastic and definitely up there with the broader peer group. So uh, that's, that's nice to see. You did just mention a few times exclusion, but um, you know, here at Nordea, we like to, to take an engagement approach and that's across all of our ESG stars products. Um, that's gonna be kind of tricky in the fixed income space, I imagine, because you, know, you don't have voting rights. And uh, so I, I know you have a slide with some examples. Maybe you could just talk us through you know, how we go about engagement in this uh, in this asset class. Absolutely. And uh, you're right, there is also a slide with some 
some examples. Um, I think uh, definitely uh, this is a topic that comes out a lot when we discuss uh, ESG integration in uh, European yield. Uh, yeah. Namely, how do you engage if you don't have voting rights? And I think it's fair to say that uh, voting rights, uh, at least in our experience, uh, they're definitely an engagement uh, entry point. Um, and we use this a lot in equity, um, among other things, but it's not the only uh, entry point. Actually, our experience is that we can engage with a company also without voting rights because well, first, because the topic is more and more important and more and more companies are open to discuss and engage uh, with us or with collective groups uh, moving uh, or bringing up um, engagement topics. And the second is that we are still an important stakeholder for the company. So we just, we want to contact with a company. It's not very different compared to when we, for example, ask an on-site visit for non-ESG related uh, things. You could also call that an engagement. Uh, here, it's just the same. We want to have a, an engagement with the company. Uh, we can do it on a one-to-one -one basis. For example, in the, uh, the, the example in the center of the slide with uh, CABB, which is a, a Swiss chemical producer, um, we contacted the company on a one-to-one -one basis. They've opened us the door and we had very uh, constructive dialogue with them. We had some uh, doubts about what they do uh, in certain areas. Sometimes it's as simple as a company is not reporting on something uh, that they do. Uh, and you could get this information if you get in contact with the company. Actually, you could even perhaps discuss with the company why they don't just uh, start with some ESG reporting, which is made uh, publicly available. This is also something that we try to do to foster a, a positive lasting impact, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so you see these actually as two um, benefits. The first is, it is one way to push for positive impact. And the second huge benefit is that you get to know the company better, you get insight. And this is not some, it, engagement is not for us like a special uh, recipe or like the, the final medicine for all the, the illnesses uh, when it comes to um, understanding what a company is doing. It's really a part of the ESG analysis. And this goes hand in hand with the fact that we, basically make internal uh, ESG assessment. And for a yield credit is specifically important because many companies are not rated. So you need to you need more information uh, because yeah. you cannot rely on MSCI rating, for example, mm -hmm. uh, but also because um, ESG risks are quite material. And uh, you know, in European yield uh, in credit, uh, it's all about uh, uh, assessing correctly the risks. So engagement, uh, internal ESG analysis, that's an additional layer of risk control, of risk management, if you want. So it's it's definitely helpful. And it's I cannot repeat enough how important it is to, uh, or how, how happy we are with our internal capabilities on this, because CABB, for example, has no MSCI rating, and we uh, define the rating after speaking with the company. Uh, the example on the left, without going into details, also has no, has no score uh, from MSCI, for example, has no rating and we scored the company internally. Uh, eventually it was not investable, not living up to our standard, but uh, that's, uh, that's, that's at least we know we're not excluding it simply because it's, uh, it is uh, not rated from MSCI. Mm -hmm. um, and often we could also, let's say overrule MSCI and uh, disagree with the rating uh, they, uh, they provide. So for example, Atalian, uh, which is the example on the right, 
the internal scoring we formalized on that company is significantly higher compared to MSCI uh, rating for very good reasons. And um, this also gives us, you know, uh, insight into what can be ESG risk versus ESG scope opportunities. Uh, if there is a gap in the perception of the company, what we perceive, what the market perceives. So it's definitely a strategic part of the analysis, uh, which is very important uh, in our opinion, yeah. So in, in a way, it's a little bit like, you know, when we go out with small cap managers, sort of small mid cap managers, they always talk about that gap in research on the sell side. It sounds like there's a gap there as well on the ESG side for this particular asset class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you, I mean, it's no secret that uh, the coverage in um, sub-investment grade credit in Europe is not 100%. Then clearly you either exclude a big portion of the investment universe or you do the job, uh, you do the work yourself uh, basically and you come up with your internal scoring. So it, it is definitely proprietary research uh, according to all points of view. So it's definitely something that could be a competitive advantage. Yeah. Great. I'll, uh, I'll make sure that that's on our key takeaway slide, which is coming next. So let's, uh, let's go to that straight away. And uh, we'll just go through this. I'll ask you if there's anything at the end, Fabio, that you'd like to add. But um, as we were talking about there at the beginning, uh, integrating ESG into credit investments is possible. Um, uh, that there are challenges, of course, but uh, it's something that, that we're grappling with. And, uh, you know, this, this approach that we're taking is very much in line with Article 8 uh, of the upcoming uh, ESG regulation that comes into force actually this month. So uh, that's super important to, to point out. And uh, this ESG integration, I think you mentioned it in passing there that, you know, we see it as an additional sort of risk management tool um, within the credit space. So uh, definitely an extra layer of safety uh, from, from our perspective when it comes to adding that ESG element to uh, this particular strategy. And then finally, of course, you know, it's super important to, to do your own research here. Uh, you can't rely on, on external providers. Uh, there are gaps. And so this is something that, uh, you know, this analysis needs to be done internally, in-house proprietary research. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a very important point when it comes to this particular asset class in particular. That's it from my side. Anything you'd like to add, Fabio, before we say goodbye? No, not really. Just uh, thank you again for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Time was actually, was actually flying in the last yeah, well, uh, <laughs> They say time flies when you're having fun. So uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again, Fabio, and I uh, hope to speak to you again soon. Next week, I will be joined by Michael Mordner and uh, Cecilia Siegbaum, and she uh, and Michael will be bringing us up to speed on the regulatory uh, situation. If you recall, last time we spoke to them, we talked about you know how liquid uh, this situation is. There's been a lot of updates, so we're going to bring you up to speed on everything uh, from the regulatory point of view, and. Uh, talk to you about that and what you need to know uh, coming up in the months ahead. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, uh, you can always visit our microsite. Uh, you'll find that at nordia.lu. And there you'll find all of the previous uh, interviews that we've done, podcasts and Q&As as well. So there's that. And don't forget nordiaassetmanagement.com where you'll find um, a bunch of other marketing uh, information on all of our strategies. So that's it for this week. I will see you next Wednesday.